Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. Today's guest is the anti-guru behind the massive No Fucks Given franchise, Sarah Knight. What started life with the Marie Kondo pastiche, the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck, now comprises seven guides and three journals, which have sold three million copies, and a TED talk that's notched up 10 million views. But Sarah wasn't always the queen of giving zero fucks. Scroll back to her mid-30s and you'd have found her having a panic attack in the Manhattan office where she worked. And so started 10 years of anxiety and depression. A massive leap into the freelance unknown, which let's face it, worked out pretty well. And a 1500 mile geographical from Brooklyn to the Caribbean where she now lives. None of what I'm putting out there into the world is you have to do it this way. And if you don't do it this way, you're wrong and you won't succeed. It's here are all the tools that you could possibly need to live your life in a way that is going to make it better for you and for the people around you. Sarah joined me from her home in the Dominican Republic to talk about her new book, Grow the Fuck Up, how sometimes it takes getting what you want to realise you don't want it, and why we often need permission to make a change. Sarah also told me how she learned to give fewer but better fucks, what to do if you're married to a big fucking baby, and why selfish shouldn't be a four-letter word. You've got cats, haven't you? Mine are not allowed in the house, so they're strictly garden cats. Oh, oh my God. Mind you, you live in the Dominican Republic, so that's not terrible, is it, for them? <laughs> no, they have a fabulous life. Nobody needs to feel sorry for them. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> better for them to be outside. And with all the sunshine and all the snakes they could chase. Oh, God. Were they New York cats or did you get them when you moved? Oh, no, they showed up in my in my yard here. We actually had a cat before we left New York, but he died. We were intending to bring him here, but maybe somehow in his heart of hearts, he didn't want to make the move, but uh, but he shuffled off Aww. about six months before we left. And um, we got here and of course, you know, I'm a softie and this little scraggly cat showed up and he was all hurt and had wounds and scratches and everything. And I put out some food Aww. and then I put out some food again. And then suddenly I had a cat and then his friend showed up. So now I have two cats. <laughs> You're probably lucky the whole gang didn't come round. It's like, oh, I found this great one. Yeah. No, for sure there have been there have been plenty of others who have tried to infiltrate, but my husband has really put his his foot down after the two. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for coming on the shift. I really appreciate it. Let's start by talking about you. Because if we scroll back ten years, you were very much not the anti guru, were you? Correct. I was not. <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So uh, just for a little bit of context, I am 44 right now. So uh, 10 years ago, I was working at Simon & Schuster. I was a senior editor at one of New York's top five major publishing houses. I'd been at that career for 15 years. uh, And I thought, that I was going to make my way all the way up the ladder, become a publisher, have my own Mm. imprint, die behind that desk. Basically, this was my plan, (laughs) Um, such as it was. And uh, I was really ambitious. I've been incredibly type A since the day I was born. And I was doing really, really well uh, professionally. I have books on the bestseller list, fiction, nonfiction, you name it. Everything was going well in that department. But I was just losing my mind. I was depressed and panicking. And I started having panic attacks, which is a whole thing that was, you know, took a while to figure out what was going on with that. And I just, I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. I didn't want to get on the subway to go to my fancy job that I'd been climbing my way up to for 15 years uh, to work with all of the illustrious, talented uh, colleagues and authors. You know, I just, I was just completely just at a loss. I was really, I was becoming very desperate. And I had kind of a, you know, shake myself moment. And I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. You're in your mid thirties. You have a great life. You have a lovely apartment. You have a wonderful husband. You have a really good job. You're doing everything you wanted to be doing. What is wrong here? What is, you know, what is it? And I just realized that in order to prioritize my mental health, I was going to have to get out of the corporate environment. It wasn't the job itself, the editing, which I love, the collaborating with writers, uh, discovering new voices, putting books out into the world. It was just the being not myself for eight to 10 hours a day at the office, kind of folding myself up into a little corporate worker bee ball was not working for me. And, you know, I could go on and on about that. But basically, I realized if I had any hope of coming out of this deep misery that I was in and starting over and finding my way toward a much happier and and just more pleasant existence, I was going to have to change my job. And I was more than that going to have to work for myself. So I made that change and it it took about a year of saving money and sort of psychologically battening down the hatches to prepare to not only go out on my own as a freelancer to be my own boss, but also to admit that I was jettisoning this career and this track Mm -hmm. record and this reputation and everything that I had worked so hard to maintain, to admit that to other people, to admit it to myself. And then in the summer of 2015, uh, about a year after that revelation had made itself clear, I I quit my job. I walked into my boss's office. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and I'm leaving. And he said, oh my, oh my goodness. I mean, I think this was an yeah. enormous shock to him because I was such a climber and so, you know, had, yeah. had made my desire known to be tops. He said, is there anything I can say that would change your mind? And I said, no. He said, where are you going? And I said, I'm not going anywhere else. I'm going to work for myself. And he just kind of like, you know, very shocked at that. Uh, And that kind of started me down this next path, which had a a couple of other tributaries that we can get into. Because you weren't just successful, were you? I mean, you you edited Gone Girl, so you'd edited the biggest book of that year and probably the year before and the year after. I mean, I just think people don't understand because our society is so set up for, you know, climb the corporate ladder, get bigger, get a bigger desk, get a bigger office, get a bigger paycheck, that if you step off it, people are a bit like their head spins. They're just like, what's 
what's going on there? Yeah. How did you manage to get to the, the point where you overcame that? For me, it was truly an act of desperation. I mean, I'm not sure that I ever would have sought out something different or better or or had the understanding that things could be different or better if I hadn't hit such a personal low. Just something had to give. But I think that one of the things I've learned since I started writing all of my books, so when I left my job, I had lined up a bunch of freelance clients and I had my serenite editor shingle out in the world and was raring to go. And then I just randomly had this idea for a book that was intended as a parody of Marie Kondo's tidying guide at the time. It was a big bestseller, this Japanese tidying guide called The Life-Changing mm. Magic of Tidying Up. And I had had a copy of it sitting around. I'd read it. I was going to send it to my mother because she really needs it. But then I thought that was passive aggressive, so I didn't. Um, <laughs> and I just, it popped into my head that, you know, everything that Marie Kondo was telling you to do for your sock drawer and your garage uh, and your playroom and your children's books, you know, I was doing inside my own mind. I was getting rid of things that annoyed me and holding on to what could or or should be bringing me joy and unearthing it and giving it a chance to work its magic in my life. And I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny to write a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck? And I think partly the reason I was able to move forward on that idea was because I had freed myself from so many unwanted tasks and obligations and burdens on my time, my energy, my psyche from leaving my job. And so I, I had this burst of creativity and I and I wrote a proposal and I sold the book right away and then I wrote the book and then it became a big bestseller and kind of spawned all of these other books that are not parodies, that are just me giving <laughs> life advice. And I think that a lot of what I talk about in all of my books comes back to what you said, which is getting to the place where my readers recognize and understand that it's okay to deviate from the path, that change can be uncomfortable, but is also okay, and that you have every right to do what is best for you in this sort of one wild and precious life. And if anything that I hear from readers just all over the world for the last seven years or so, it's, I feel like you gave me permission. And I think mm -hmm. that's what so many of us aren't ready to just grab for ourselves is that permission to make a change, to be a different person than we thought we were, to want something different than we used to profess to want. And that for me, as I said, was a moment of desperation. I had to make a change. But I think a lot of the people that have been reading my books all these years have, have been able to make those changes without having to get to that point, only because some lady with a naughty mouth, you know, has gone out there and told them that it's okay and given them that permission. So how did your husband react? Because one of the things that strikes me is really interesting. And, and I had a similar experience to you, but 10 years later in my career is that he married this kind of like driven, ambitious, go-getting, I want that top chair in the top office and the top floor. And then you're like, I'm done. How was that domestically? Asking for so, a friend. <laughs> so for some context, my husband and I have been together since I was 20 years old. So he has known me for more than half of my life. And he is thrilled <laughs> that <laughs> I was able to take my foot off the gas figure out what was going wrong with me. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't any fun for him to come home to a wife or, you know, girlfriend, fiance, wife, all these years that we've that we've been together who was anxious and panicked and 
didn't want to make any plans for the weekend because she had so much work to do and didn't really feel like going out to the plans that she had already agreed to because she just felt kind of nauseous or a little short of breath and wasn't really sure what was going on. He thought I was sickly. I thought I was sickly. All of that stuff turned out to be symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. And once I started looking into that, which I also didn't want to do, nobody wants to go to the doctor, right? And nobody, at least nobody like me, who feels like their driven, ambitious nature is what is defines them and is why mm. they are so successful, doesn't want to potentially lose that edge because then who am I? Then what is my life going to be like? Am I just going to become a sack of potatoes and just laze around playing video games on my sofa all day and, and no longer try. Spoiler, <laughs> that is not what yeah. happens. Um, <laughs> you get help for the parts that, you know, of your, your brain chemistry or whatever it is that you need help with. And the rest of you is still pretty much you, just a lot calmer and a lot more clear headed. And so I am still extremely ambitious. I still want the best for my latest career. But I'm able to cut through the noise of my own head and also have learned from the experience of what it looks like when I'm out of whack and off balance and know that feeling. If it starts coming on again, I'm like, you know what? I'm overcommitted. I need to pare down the list, the to-do list or the RSVP list or whatever it is. I need a little bit of time. You know, right now, actually, my husband is out of town visiting his mother for a few days. And it's glorious for me because I can do things like this. I can mop the house without, you know, I can put on the music I like and do it at my leisure and not have to worry that I'm in his way. Or, you know, I can lay out by the pool, which is, you know, sorry to your listeners who might get tired of hearing about the fact that not only did I quit my job, I moved to a tropical island. (laughs) Not jealous at all. (laughs) You know, I just sort of have, have my downtime and know what I need to, to create that downtime for myself so that I can be my best self for the things that I need to do professionally or the things that I need to do personally. You know, I let a lot of relationships with my husband, my friends, my parents just kind of wither in those, I would call them probably five to seven really bad years of of my anxiety and my depression and not knowing what that was. I let those relationships, you know, I wasn't doing my part to keep those relationships healthy because I didn't have enough gas in the tank to put that effort in. And relationships do require effort. And then of course, there are the relationships that you realize you don't want to be in at all anymore. And you can relieve yourself of the effort of, you know, banging your head against a brick wall with some people in your life, uh, which is another you know thing that I talk about in a, in a number of my books is, you know, pairing away the things that, as Marie Kondo would say, don't bring joy. And, you know, people can be some of those things. Totally. I'm not going to dwell too much longer on the burnout. I just think it feels very topical at the moment. You know, we've had like the New Zealand Premier Jacinda Ardern resigned because she didn't have enough gas in the tank. You know, I live in Scotland and the First Minister here, Nicola Sturgeon, resigned in part also because after eight years, she's like, I'm done here. And I think it's really interesting to watch the way that people respond when someone, and I don't think I've ever seen a man do it, a woman stands up and says, done here. And it immediately becomes an excuse to say, oh, they can't cut it. Right. They're weak. They never Mm. should have had the job in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I am an enormous advocate for mental health and I talk about it all the time. 
you know, in my own way, if, if the fact that I drop a lot of F-bombs along the way helps it be more accessible to people, then I'm all for that. Uh, we actually have in the United States um, a politician named John Fetterman, who was just elected as senator from Pennsylvania in the last election cycle. And he ran against a very slick Republican Trump-esque kind of rival. And people weren't sure that he would win. Fetterman is very working class. He's, you know, a man of the people. But he also had a major stroke during his campaigning. And everybody tried to cast him as weak. And how can you put this man in power? And mm. he's just going to die, you know, or, and, and abandon you. And with all of that, and then starting his term in Washington, he actually just checked himself into the Walter Reed Army Medical Center for Clinical Depression. And he put out a statement and wow. he said, I have been recovering from my stroke. I have been starting my service, my congressional service, and I am not okay. And I need to seek treatment for this. And it is, I think, the first time that I can remember a high profile man, uh, and particularly a politician, going out mm. there and saying, yeah, I'm got, I got to do this for myself. It's no different than if I had broken my leg and I needed to be in rehab. You know, I need to get my head on straight in order to be the best person and advocate and employee of the people that I promised to be, but also just to be able to continue living my life. So I do think that slowly, slowly and, and painfully, we are starting to see mental health become a bigger portion of the conversation around, you know, what people feel like they can commit to and when they have to put up some boundaries and say, I can't, I don't want to, I'm not equipped, whatever the case may be. I think we're definitely getting better and certainly younger people are getting better. I mean, I was thinking about burnout, but also self-care and it still feels a little bit like they feel like they're the preserve of millennials. The number of women that I've spoken to for this podcast who they kind of say, well, self-care is a bit icky, you know, it's a bit icky and it's a bit woo-woo and they don't see it as actually just making sure that your mental health is in good nick so that you're able to, you know, do a good job or be a good parent or partner or whatever. They still see it as self-indulgent and I've definitely, I'm trying to get better, but I've still got a little bell in the back of my head going woo-woo, you know. <laughs> well, I think, you know, for me, self-care is whatever you make of it and there are a lot of people in the gaping mall that is the internet who will say, self-care isn't bubble baths, you know, that's just code for I want to treat myself to a bubble bath. That's not self-care. Well, if it helps you take care of yourself, it's self-care, whatever it is. It's walking your dog. It's petting a random stranger's dog. It's napping. It's meditating. It's exercising. It's getting your nails done regularly. Um, whatever you need to do to feel, you know, as my anxiety doctor would have put it, to down-regulate. You know, you're all the way up to the tip, tip, top of your skull with tasks and obligations and feelings and, and worries and everything. And you need to be able to get that pressure all the way back down, like ideally down around your waist so that you have room to fill it back up again because it's going to. It's going to fill and it's going to release. And self-care is all about finding time and space to grant yourself that release. And I just think, you know, we should take it out of the realm of woo-woo. You know, some people are doing, I don't know, ayahuasca retreats for self-care and that sounds a little woo-woo to me but like some people are just reading a book in the sun for an hour <laughs> and um, I definitely think we should be destigmatizing that and I also think that another sort of 
chorus of reader responses that I've had from all of my books is, you know, I wish I knew then what I know now, which is, mm-hmm. you know, Sarah, you a, you know, somewhere between my late 30s and mid 40s, where I've been writing these books have told me things as a 35, 45, 55, 65 year old person that I wish I had been implementing, you know, for the last three or four decades. So every little bit helps everybody talking about it and saying, hey, this is important. You know, you have to put on your own oxygen mask before you help others because you are no good to anybody else if you can't breathe, basically. (laughs) Do you see in that feedback and the, the feedback you talked about earlier about people feeling that you gave them permission, do you see an age divide or a gender divide? I definitely get the most feedback from women. I do hear from men. I hear from young men, old men, fathers who tell me that they've shared one or more of my books with their children, usually sharing my book, Calm the Fuck Down, with their anxious teenage daughters, which makes a lot of sense, (laughs) being that I was one of those anxious teens. I do hear mostly from women. And I would say, actually, the age divide is all over the map now. I think it started out being more people who are kind of in my bracket and a little bit older, but I have started hearing from young people, teenagers, teenagers who are still in high school, very, you know, 18 year olds who have just gone off to college. Um, And I've been trying to make the books reflect that, you know, over time, the more people I hear from, the more I instinctively begin to understand who's out there reading. And I want to make sure that my examples and my anecdotes and my advice are suitable for people of all, you know, ages and socioeconomic backgrounds. But the reason I ended up writing the brand new book, Grow the Fuck Up, How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One, was specifically because this young TikToker posted, I guess, TikToked, about uh, about <laughs> calming the fuck down. And it was such a popular post for her that she did a whole series where she read aloud from, from my book and we just started selling copies and selling copies and selling copies. And it was like this book that at the time was, I don't know, three years old, just took on this new life, you know, presumably largely with the young people who were following this young person. And then I started getting messages from young readers. Oh, I I read your book, Calm the Fuck Down, and I went back and I read You Do You. I went back and read The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. And they were just telling me how it had changed things for them and how they were so glad that they had been able to get this information, you know, in their youth before they had to go out there and sort of necessarily make all the same mistakes or have all the same tough experiences that I did. Sure, they'll still have them in different ways, but they're better prepared now, I think. And so Grow the Fuck Up kind of came out of that. I wanted to talk about just what it means to kind of be an adult person with your head on your shoulders, to be responsible, to be mature, to be accountable, and why that's not only, you know, something we should aspire to just for the sake of our own integrity, but also how that helps you in life, how it helps you to be someone who is a person of their word, who can be relied on, how it helps you to be emotionally mature when it comes to relationships, whether it's a love relationship that you're desperate to continue or one that you're trying to untangle yourself from. So um, it was sort of like people of my age. And then I would hear from a lot of older people who said, I wish I knew this when. And then I started hearing from young people and I thought, okay, I can do this. I can work with this. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I was reading, I started reading it thinking this is aimed at a much younger audience. And then as I got into it, I was thinking, oh, you know, it's a really neat trick, the way that you manage to make it feel relevant, right? Across the board. Nice work. Well done. Well, 
Thank you, because it really is a lot of, you know, thinking through the different the different things that I'm trying to convey to a reader. And when I was a book editor myself, I always told my authors, I am reading with a fan on one shoulder and a critic on the other. And everything that you're getting from me, all of the suggestions and the critiques and the ideas are coming from that place of a fan who kind of loves you no matter what and doesn't maybe have the most discerning you know, sense of of what you could maybe be doing better. And then a critic whose job is to say, this is what you're doing wrong and kind of melding those together. And so for me, when I'm writing my books, I'm always trying to read from the perspective of a 15 year old and a 65 year old. I'm trying to read from the perspective of, you know, a single young woman and an old married couple. I'm trying to make sure that everything I say is as relevant as it can be to anybody because I mean, first of all, great for me, the more people who who want to, who feel that they can benefit from my books, the more books I sell. Awesome. But mostly I started writing these books because I felt so left out of the conversation. I didn't think I liked self-help. I didn't think I needed self-help. I thought it was woo-woo, you know, and I started writing the books the way I write them with my sense of humor and with my often very strange metaphorical, uh, you know, dalliances and, you know, with a lot of kind of just weird stuff thrown in because I'm a weird person who didn't fit in, you know, all of the time. And I want to make sure that people pick these books up and for the most part, feel like they fit in and feel like there's something in it for them, you know, except for the diehard Trump supporters who do not like it when I make jokes (laughs) about (laughs) about their chosen one, but I can't help myself. They're my books. So I get to say whatever I want. And sometimes people send me hate mail about that, but... (laughs) I could be wrong, but it seemed to me that in this book, it feels like you're advising people to give more of a fuck. I think it's always been about giving fewer, better fucks. So saying no fucks given or zero fucks given is kind of a very popular internet meme. But really what it is always about with me is it's about efficiency and it's about (laughs) getting the most bang for your buck, the most bang for your fuck and putting your time, energy and money toward the things and people that not only bring you joy and that don't annoy you, but that serve you. And adulthood, you know, it's not all beach parties and, and, you know, blueberry mojitos. It's also, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and it's difficult conversations with people you love and it's sudden needs to find a new job or a new apartment and it's keeping your lawn mowed and paying your, your co-op dues and all of this stuff. And you have to do these things, even if you don't want to give your fucks to these things. They're a part of your existence as an adult. It's part of your social contract as an adult. And it's for your own good. And it's also for the good of of people around you. And I think that it's important to not lose sight of the fact that we're all in this together. And you appreciate it just as much if somebody, your colleague or one of your siblings or your neighbor is acting like an adult when you need to get adult things done as much as they appreciate it coming from you. And what I try to get across and grow the fuck up is that no matter where you are, you know, no matter what age you are, it's never too late to dust off some of these skills. Um, Nobody's ever going to complain if you are more you know, accountable, if you are more responsible, if you're more fun and awesome, nobody's going to complain about that. And this kind of self-improvement, this personal development that you engage in with this book and all of my others also benefits you. You know, you're doing it. I'm telling you like, listen, it's not hard to be on time. Let me tell you the secrets of not being a late person because everybody's annoyed by a late person and it's not helping you to be late to everything. Like this is going to benefit you too. So, you know, hopefully a lot of that 
is kind of helped along by the, by the humor angle and by the swear words so people don't feel like they're getting a lecture. They feel like they're kind of joining in on a on a secret that's going to make things better for them. And I think it I think it does. And when I was writing Grow the Fuck Up, I was also thinking in my own head I sort of had these characters, people I know <laughs> who I'm thinking about as I'm writing. I'm <laughs> like, okay, this is advice for this, you know, 16-year-old that I know and this is advice for this 21-year-old that I know and this is advice for a 60-year-old that I know who maybe you know could be could be working on this a little bit more productively. So I do hope that people find something that they can connect with. That's the idea. That's the hope. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So what if you think, okay, I'm definitely not a big fucking baby. I mean, I might be a little bit late, speaking personally, but I'm working on that. But I also know I'm not a total fucking grown up, although lucky me, I am married to one. <laughs> Poor him, he's married to a theoretical adult. Okay, so what if you're, you're reading this book and you think, oh God, I'm married to a big fucking baby. What advice do you give them, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's quite a lot of advice in this book that you could just very cleverly, slowly introduce to your, your life partner partner. And I think that one of the most motivating things for a good relationship, if you have if you have a healthy relationship with your partner, typically you want to do nice things for each other. You want to please each other. You don't want to be the bane of one another's existence. So if there is something that your significant other is bad at or is not doing, and it's something legitimate, it's not you expecting too much, or it's not you trying to completely change who they are. You knew who they were when you got together. But if it's something reasonable, you can often make it happen if you phrase it more as like, could you do this for me? Like, it would really make me happy, or it would really just relieve me if you could handle this thing or if you could maybe just when you're about to do this if you could think oh Sarah doesn't like it when I do that I'm gonna try to do it this other way I find that people especially in 
you know, in love relationships are much more motivated by the idea of doing something nice for their significant other. When your significant other says, can you just do this? Your life would be so much better. And you're like, I'm fine with the way I am. You know, you're not getting them to think about the fact that their total fucking babiness, their big fucking babiness, (laughs) um, is detrimental to this person they claim to love and to be supportive of and want to live in harmony with. So it's just a little bit of a, a mindset shift in terms of, you know, you don't want to be critical. You don't want to be harp on people. That's not usually how you get things done. Catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. But I think that if you can phrase things in a way that's like, would you do something for me? Like this would really help me if you could do this, or if you could just make a a slight change to your approach on this, that to me seems to work better than harassing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love that at the beginning you talk about effectively the power of the aunt, because I think aunties and uh, I suppose by extension godparents maybe some step parents that kind of elder that you can talk to but doesn't have skin in the game is so underrated aren't they I mean I mean I have skin in the game here because I'm child free and I feel like the relationships I have with children are those are those relationships but you know it's it's so rare that anybody actually talks about that well when I was thinking about this next book it was it was during the lockdown and my brother I have one brother. He's six years younger than me. He and his wife did the, well, time to have a baby, you know, thing that I think <laughs> Nothing a lot else of people to do. did. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, we're, we're trapped alone in this apartment for months on end. What, whatever could we be up to? You know, they were always planning on having, having children, but this was the timing. And when that happened and I was sort of formulating the idea for this book, it occurred to me that because I am child-free by choice, have never wanted children, have never regretted that decision, but I had such great aunts when I was growing up, also who did not have children. My mom has seven brothers and sisters. She was the only one who had kids. So I had all of these women around, these adult women who treated me like an adult. I'm not saying that that they didn't understand how kids operate, and I didn't feel like I was uh, in any way being deprived of childhood by being treated like an adult. I liked being treated like an adult and hanging out with the adults. And my aunts, you know, to a woman, really I can pinpoint the various things that they contributed to my understanding of how the world works, to my understanding of myself, to my understanding of how to be a woman in, you know, professional way and in a love relationship way. You know, I really credit them with a lot of shaping of me uh, in addition to what my parents provided. And I think that what they all had in common is none of them were trying to be my mother. None of them were trying to mold me actively. They were just, you know, taking me along for the ride on ways of life that weren't necessarily the same way of life that I was getting from my two-parent household with my younger sibling. Like, they were my aunts. We did more interesting things and, and you know, stuff that was like a treat, whether it was, you know, learning how to sew or going to museums or going to ballet or, you know, learning how to cook and things like that. So when I was working on Grow the Fuck Up, I was thinking, you know, I'm an aunt now, officially. I'm going to be an auntie. And I don't want to be that person who tells other people how to parent their kids. My friends know I have really strong opinions about how children should behave, but I also know better having occasionally overstepped my bounds and realized it um, or been been told that I did. Um, But that's not what other parents want from me. And it's not really what kids need from me either. What I'm hoping to provide is a perspective that again, can kind of transcend age that says, 
look, I'm out here doing adult stuff and it's working for me. It could be working for you. And let's talk a little bit about how you get there and whether you're starting from age 14 or whether you're starting from age 44, it's all the same. This is kind of the key to all of my no fucks given guides is I'm really giving advice and strategies and tips that are widely applicable. So, you know, like I say in the beginning of the introduction to this book, I'm not going to give you step-by-step instructions on how to change the fluid in your windshield wipers or do your taxes. <laughs> like that's on you. I am going to explain to you how to be an adult who understands why those things are important and who possesses the qualities that make you capable of figuring out how to do them and doing them well um, or doing them well enough to get by. And that's another thing that I come to at the end of the book is, you know, this isn't a lecture, you know, none of what I'm putting out there into the world is you have to do it this way. And if you don't do it this way, you're wrong and you won't succeed. It's here are all the tools that you could possibly need to live your life in a way that is going to make it better for you and for the people around you. And when it comes to being a total fucking grown up, you just have to try. It's like when your parents ask you to just try to go to the bathroom before a long car ride. Everybody try. You know, that's the best you can do. And the hallmark of a big fucking baby is that they just won't try. They just won't bother. They wait around for other people to do things for them. And that is fine when you're two years old. And it's fine when you're six years old. But like, if you're an adult out there in the adult world, you got to stop sitting around and waiting for other people to clean up your messes and, you know, and do your homework for you. You have to be resourceful. You have to be self-sufficient. You have to be self-aware. And if you at least try, you're not always going to succeed. Nobody's perfect. Um, I'm not trying to level criticisms about the behaviors that, you know, you said, well, I might be a little bit of a big fucking baby in some way, but mostly I'm just a theoretical adult who hasn't quite achieved total fucking grown up. (laughs) We're all a mix of that. The hardest thing for me is saying I was wrong and I am sorry without decorating it with excuses and caveats like of the three pillars of growing the fuck up maturity responsibility and accountability accountability has historically been very very hard for me um and i admit that in the book and i talk about why it's hard and you know why it's difficult to admit you are wrong and how it makes you feel and how you can change the way it makes you feel so that it's actually fun to be like you know what i was wrong every time i say i was wrong and my husband's like you were wrong. <laughs> Say it again. You know, that it turns it into a cool thing that you can admit to this instead of a embarrassing, shameful, you know, thing that you have to admit to it. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of room for for adulting. There's a lot of room on this spectrum. Some of us have, you know, mastered some parts of it and really need more help with others. But in the end, it's just all connected and it's just not that hard. And this is another thing I'm trying to do is simplify what can be a a big kind of scary, mysterious process for people. It's just, you know what, like it's kind of these three steps and here's how you do each of them. And here are some tips and here are some F words to make it fun for you. (laughs) (laughs) Go go forth, go forth and adult. (laughs) When I was reading it, I tried to think of um, questions that the listeners might have while reading it, or in fact, other of your books as well. Why do you think that we have, and by we, I suppose I do mean predominantly women, have so much trouble saying, no, thanks, I'd rather not. Well, though I am not a scientist um, or a (laughs) a behavioral therapist, uh, I think I can say with some surety that women are socialized to please. Um, Mm -hmm. Boys are socialized to win and women are socialized to help, to make sure that everybody has what they need, to make sure that nobody feels bad. We are socialized to serve and boys 
are socialized to win, to win at any cost, to win without being polite, to win without necessarily being fair, to win without caring about what your win makes others feel like. And women are really the opposite. And saying no feels like you are not serving, you are not helping. And so it just feels antithetical to what we've kind of, you know, broadly as a gender have been socialized to do. And so I think that's what makes it more difficult for women than it does for men to say no, because it feels like the essence of a woman is to say yes. How can I help? What more can I do? And the fact is, the more you offer to help and the more you do and the more you follow through, the bigger a drain it is on those essential fuck bucks, your time, energy, and money, your fuck budget gets completely overdrawn. And then you are completely out of time or out of energy. You're out of money. You're flailing. You have none left for yourself. You can't even put any time and energy into self-care because you have none left. And so I think that one of the things that women need to do is... A, not say yes right away. Learn to give yourself the gift of the pause. Learn to say, thanks for asking. I'll have to get back to you on that. I need to check my calendar. Let me get back to you on that. There's no reason in the world that you can't, you know, create a pause so that you can come back, you know, out of the conversation you were having, out of your email inbox and really think for five minutes, think for 20 seconds. Do I want to do this? Can I do this? Should I do this? Should is a dangerous one because true obligation is different from perceived obligation. Should I get up and go to work today? Yes, if I want to get paid so (laughs) that I can pay my rent. But you know, should I go to my friend's 10 p.m. on Tuesday night birthday party that they just invited me to? Probably not because it's going to make it really hard for me to get up and go to work on Wednesday (laughs) to earn my paycheck to pay my rent, you know? So the question of should you really have to think about is this a true obligation or a perceived obligation? And you can't do that in the moment. If somebody says, hey, can you come to my birthday? It's 10 o'clock on Tuesday. Yeah, sure, I'll be there. The answer is, let me just check my calendar and I'll get back to you. And then you have a moment to think for yourself, do I want to do this? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. Should I do this? Probably not. And you can say, hey, so sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it. And that's true. You don't have to explain why you're not going to be able to make it. You don't have to say it's because you don't want to or because you can't or because you can't afford it or because you want to get more sleep. You can just say, I'm not going to be able to make it. And that's okay. So I think giving the gift of the pause is really helpful for women in those situations because then you can become clear on what you really want. Sometimes the answer is going to be yes, and that's fine too. And then another thing is, you know, you have to understand that most people don't care nearly as much about (laughs) your answer as you think they do. They don't care nearly as much about your life choices. They don't give a fuck. They're just like, oh, okay, so my party is going to be seven people instead of eight. Great. I'm going to make the reservation. Like they're not really judging you the way you feel like you are being judged. Are you going to have some people in your life, bosses or mothers-in-law or, you know, somebody who's going to kind of push back and say, oh, are you sure? Yes. Do you do that to people? Yes, you do. It is a common (laughs) reaction when somebody invites you to something and you say, I can't make it. They say, oh, that's too bad. They just mean, oh, that's too bad. Or they say, are you sure? That's just what we do as humans. We have these interactions and you can be like, yeah, I'm sure. And then leave it at that. Most people will not think ill of you. They're not going to punish you. They are going to not even think about it after you say no. And for the people that do and who are actively trying to make you feel guilty and who are not listening when you're telling them that you're not available or you can't make it or you don't want to or you can't afford it and they push, 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 you can push back and say, you know, I feel like you not taking no for an answer says more about you than it does about me here. Can't make it. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because like you say, we spend our lives being socialized to help and, 
you know, support. And for so many women, basically carrying the emotional load at home, in relationships, but also at work. I mean, I hope it's changing for younger women, but certainly most of the time that I was working in office, there was still a kind of, if you were in a, in a meeting and there were loads of men and you were one of the only women, you could bet that you would be the one who would be asked to make the tea and the other woman would be taking the notes or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And when you get... I don't know whether it's postmenopausal, whether it's post-family if you've had one, and you kind of get to the point where you go, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not finding your keys. I'm not cooking your supper. I'm not going to that party I don't want to go to or whatever. You then immediately start to be condemned as selfish in a way that men never are. I mean, I just embrace the word. I don't think (laughs) that there's anything wrong with being selfish. You know, people level that as though it's a four-letter word. And I know a lot about four-letter words. Uh, And I just don't think selfish is one of them. And I think it's possible to be a bad, selfish person. uh, But it's also more than possible to be what I call good selfish. I talk about this a lot in my book, You Do You. And the idea is, you know, if it's helping you more than it's hurting someone else to say no to an invitation or decline to participate in an activity or, you know, not raise your hand for some extra work at the office, then that's fine. You're taking care of your own needs and you're not actively hurting or trying to hurt somebody else in the process. And the other thing is, you know, everybody's different and everybody's relationships are different. And you know whether saying no to your mother about something is really going to deeply hurt her or whether it's just just you saying no to your mom and she'll be like, hmm, and that's the end of that, you know? And if you know that whatever action you would prefer to take is highly likely to hurt someone else more than it helps you to take that action, then maybe don't take it, you know? And and sometimes you are going to do some things that you don't really want to do, but you recognize that they are so much more important to the other person. Or you recognize that stepping up, you know, filling a spot that got vacated last minute by someone for, you know, an activity that you didn't really want to do means that 12 other people can't do it, you know, that we need a 12th for the charity softball team. And there's no way you wanted to play charity softball, but they literally will have to forfeit the game and lose all of this money for the charity that they're raising if you don't just say, I'll stand at second base and just put my hand up and hope for the best because, you know, Barbara got food poisoning and can't be here. Like in that case, if you have the time, you don't really want to do it, but you recognize that you're doing something for the greater good, feel free to say yes. Also feel free to say no. But this idea of selfish, there's just, there's a lot of benefit in looking out for number one. I say in all of my books that, you know, don't go out there being an asshole or psychopath. The idea here is not to give zero fucks and care about nothing and no one. And, you know, it's about understanding that your life and happiness have value and that within your fuck budget, you need to build in enough that sustains you and serves you, whether that's pure unadulterated happiness, or like I said, serving you because maintaining a certain relationship means that you're going to be able to do something that you really want to do in your life if you keep this person happy or keep them in your life, whatever the case may be. But I just don't believe that being selfish is inherently bad thing. It's just not. (laughs) What do you think that 34-year-old Sarah, who was still in Stress City, I think, would say now if she could see you now? Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to contemplate that. I am in an extremely different place 
both physically uh, and mentally than I was 10 years ago. However, I do still experience, it's not been a magic bullet, I do still experience periods of anxiety and depression, periods of overwhelm, of feeling much less certain about myself and what I thought I wanted. But now I have this long, you know, multi-year evidence-based history (laughs) to page back through and say, look what happened last time you felt like you needed to make a big change. Look what happened last time you realized you couldn't do X, Y, or Z anymore. You made the change. You altered your way of being and things got better, which means that if you need to do that again, you're capable of doing it again and things will change and things will hopefully get better. And I think that when I was younger, partly because of my own type A tendencies, I thought there was one path and that my job for myself was to follow that path to the the most perfect possible degree and get to the end of it. And that's a perfectly fine thing for a 15 or 20 or 25 year old to think. But the older you get, the more you realize that like, there's a lot of different segments in life. Very unusual that anybody is doing the same thing when they were, you know, at 61 than they were doing when they were 21. And that that's okay. And that you don't have to be so rigid. And I think that 34 year old Sarah would look at this life and be like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) you live in the tropics, you speak Spanish now, like you have a pool, you work for yourself. You don't set an alarm. I mean, God, people are going to think that I am the most, you know, ridiculous person. But one of the best things about leaving my corporate job was I do not set an alarm in the morning unless I have to catch a flight or have a really early appointment. I just get to sleep until the sleeping is done. And that is so good for me. I need a lot of sleep. I'm not a morning person. It's amazing. So I think I would look at myself and just be like, you don't have to get up and spend an hour putting on makeup and heels and guzzling coffee and running to catch the train and maybe not catching it and worrying about being late and getting to the office and doing all the interpersonal theater of working with your colleagues and your superiors and then taking people out to lunch every day and having to make sure you don't have spinach in your teeth while you're talking to a literary agent and then coming back to work and trying to do a bunch of work when you're kind of full and tired from lunch and then commute all the way back home and make dinner. I mean, thankfully, my husband really took up the dinner making mantle after a while there because I was like, I can't do this. Um, But you know, all of that stuff you don't have to do. You just get to wake up in your house in the morning and drink your coffee and check your social media. And then once your brain has revved up and you're capable of sitting down to do some work, you sit down to do some work. And if you want to get up, just get up. If you want to go out to lunch, have some rosé, you can do that. I'm realizing that this is all coming back to what we talked about in the beginning, the permission that I have given myself Mm. in the last near decade to just do things the way I want to do them and work it out. And I, I understand that some people listening will be like, oh, you know, we can't all just quit our jobs. We can't all just move to the tropics. Mm. And I addressed this on an, an episode of my own podcast a couple of years ago, where I said, yeah, maybe you can't do exactly what I did, but you can do things for you. Um, just please don't send me a nasty email and tell me that you can't because there are lots of smaller ways and different ways that you can change and improve your life that don't have to be blowing it up in the course of a year like I did. And even if you do decide to do that, you can be successful after the blow up. But I do think that people need to understand what I hope that they will take away from all of my work is that I'm all about setting realistic goals. You know, I'm all about wanting things and accomplishing things that are possible. I don't want to sit there and feel like, you know, I'm never going to get to this aspirational, you know, nirvana and feel bad along the way that I'm not making it. I want to set a realistic goal and then I want to make it happen. And the way you make that happen is by doing small 
manageable bits of it along the way until suddenly you've done the thing. And then you set another realistic goal and you work at that for a little bit. It's not magic. The tools that I'm giving and the advice and the strategies and tips I'm giving, you know, this isn't sorcery, but it's just logical, rational ways to improve your life and to get more out of life. And, you know, we got a finite time here. It's like, figure this out as soon as you can, because the clock's ticking. Totally. I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask at the end. What's your emotional age? Oh, I feel like I'm just really approaching my, I feel like my emotional age is probably about 45. I think it always has been, though. I think I was a 45-year-old, 11-year-old. Give us a book recommendation. So it can be something, you know, that's been significant to you a lot of your life, or it can just be something good that you read recently. Well, my very favorite novel of all time is called A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Uh, I read it at a really formative time in my life. It was given to me by someone who was a very formative, inspiring intellectual person in my life. And I just fell absolutely in love with it and have revisited it many times over the years. And then a book that I actually edited when I was an editor at Simon & Schuster is called Come As You Are. I can't remember the subtitle exactly, but it's something like The Surprising Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And it's by Dr. Emily Nagoski. And not only did it change my life, uh, it changed the lives of many, many, many women who sent me private emails uh, after after I presented the book to our sales conference and after it was published. Uh, and Emily is just an absolute star. And she wrote a book with her sister on burnout uh, subsequent to that, which is also fantastic. I'm literally already Googling it. Um, what <laughs> advice would you give younger women on top of all the advice you've already given? I would say don't wait. Don't get stuck waiting. You know, whether that's waiting for a promotion, waiting for a proposal, waiting to make a change. Don't wait. Make it happen for yourself. You know, you have the tools, you have the strength, you know what you want, so go after it. Don't sit around waiting for somebody else, you know, to offer it to you or to give it to you. Go out, ask for it, make it happen. Great. Who is an older woman who inspires you? My friend Tony, who I met here in the Dominican Republic, she's British and she's just about to turn 65. So sort of younger than younger than my mother, but, you know, older than me in the sense that she's lived, you know, a full life. She's 20 years ahead of me on it. And um, she knows exactly what she wants. She's a single mother, five children. She has brought those children all over the world. She's raised a couple of them in France. She raised a couple of her youngest here in the DR. She started a business from absolute scratch, you know, after having two or three other careers before she ever made it here. She knows what she wants. She goes out and gets it. She is unapologetic, but she is still generous and caring. She's an excellent friend. She's very savvy, but she understands that life is not just about being professionally successful and and making money. And it's about saying you want to spend a month in Greece and making it happen. It's about saying that you're getting getting a little bit too old to put up with certain shit and yeah. and sweeping it out of your life. Um, and I I really am incredibly admiring of what she's done with her life and how she goes out and does exactly what she wants. And she does not give a fuck what anybody else thinks of it. (laughs) She sounds great. What's your superpower? My superpower is being on time. (laughs) (laughs) And I I demystify that for people, for readers of Grow the Fuck Up. But um, I am a very punctual person. So, (laughs) Yeah, you certainly were today. Possibly the most punctual person (laughs) ever. 
Um, and lastly, how many fucks do you give? Oh, well, it depends on the day. Um, you know, I give a very manageable amount day to day, <laughs> some days more, some days fewer, but I learn how to balance them in the overall, in the overall scheme of things. I feel like I'm doing a much better job of that than I was 10 years ago. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's excellent. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for coming on. Good luck with the book. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.